think also in our culture uh, in America, we just don't even uh, accept that dying is inevitable or that um, we all are going to die. It's something we kick the can down the road as long as we can. And we don't want to talk about it because if we talk about it, there's this superstition that that will make it happen. So that's kind of my observation over the years. Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, turkeys. Welcome back to another episode of Non-Sexual Soulmates. We have a big treat for you today. We are trying something new and I'm very excited about it. I know. I'm in social work mode. I have my silk scarf on and a sweater. I'm just missing my leather elbow patches. (laughs) I like it. Um, so today we're interviewing our first guest. Her name is Kelly Markham. She is going to talk to us today all about basically end of life decision making and advanced directives, which is something I've navigated around in the world of social work, but is going to be completely new for Kayla. So just to paint the landscape a little bit for you guys, um, Kayla gets to kind of be y'all's representation in this interview of just someone that's typical in our age group, probably hasn't heard a whole lot about this, probably doesn't know a lot of the terms. So she is going to be holding down the fort for y'all to ask the questions that you're probably thinking of that I'm forgetting to ask. And um, Kelly will be here just to give us education. And um, obviously we've prepared a couple of questions and some different things to talk about for her. And she'll have a business uh, to tell you guys more about where you can find her, how you can learn more about the subject. But we're pretty excited. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm not familiar with this topic at all. And I have lots of questions already. And I'm sure I'll think of more as we go. So Yeah, very excited to have Kelly on. This podcast was created using Riverside's great studio software. Riverside allows us to record remotely with high quality audio and video tracks. We use buzzsprout.com as our podcast hosting platform. Buzzsprout allows us to schedule our episodes and distribute them to all the different places that people listen. Click our affiliate links in the show notes to find out more and to help support our show. P.S. Each purchase through our affiliate link gives us a small commission at no cost to you. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. Thank you so much for doing this with us. I'm so excited you're our first guest. I feel honored. (laughs) We know you've worked in a lot of healthcare settings. Do you want to give us like a quick rundown of your experience? And then just a little bit of what you've noticed about the whole death and dying process in our healthcare setting as you experienced it? Sure, sure. Um, so I, uh, have only been in medical social work my whole career. Uh, my first internship, uh, in undergrad was in a hospital and I loved it so much. I decided I never wanted to work anywhere else. So I have avoided anything but medical social work my whole career. So I've been the majority of time in hospitals. Uh, I've done, uh, case management, you know, like discharge planning type stuff in hospitals And then uh, for 11 years, I was the palliative care manager here at a local hospital. So I started the program and ran it for 11 years. Um, I've also done hospice. 
uh, for about three and a half years. I worked in an inpatient hospice setting, um, like within a hospital, um, and uh, an outpatient uh, most recently. But yeah, my most of my healthcare has been walking the halls of those hospitals. Um, so as far as what I observed about death um, in our healthcare world in America, or you know, in my corner of the world. Um, most people are very uncomfortable with it because they're uncomfortable about their own mortality, I think, uh, is a big part of it. But also, I feel like physicians get next to no training about how to communicate about end of life and death and dying. Their focus, as it should be, is on um, reversible illness and reversing that illness. But um, I think also in our culture, uh, in America, we just don't even... Uh, accept that dying is inevitable or that um, we all are going to die. It's something we kick the can down the road as long as we can. And we don't want to talk about it because if we talk about it, there's this superstition that that will make it happen. So that's kind of my observation over the years. That feels about right for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. It and, like and it's, you know, especially if you're young and healthy, Mm -hmm. Um, there's not a lot of reason to talk about it in many situations, you know, um, we don't like to think that we're mortal and that we're um, subject to accidents or severe illness. And if there's no, nothing like that on the horizon, you know, I don't blame people for not talking about it. I really don't. Yeah. Fun fact. I'll just share this real quick. We had our son four months ago and we finally were like, my husband and I said, we need to get a life insurance policy. So we yeah. finally took that step, which is was a big one for us. But now I'm very excited to hear more what, what you're going to share because I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, my mother's kind of been telling me what my, my parents have been doing. And I know we've got quite a few things that we have not even thought of yet. So yeah, I'm very interested to but listen. that's okay. It's it's kind of like peeling an onion. You know, yeah. you um, think of each thing and then you do it. So it's okay. You know, the fact that you're starting in the process at your age gives you big bonus points. Really does. But yeah, um, you know, we, as you get older, you do really think, you know, you start thinking about those aches and pains and those little illnesses that you have, you know, that make you realize you've got to think about that. But um a lot of people, when they have a child, that's when they start thinking, "Ooh, I've got to prepare for what would happen if this child didn't have me around. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think by contrast, um, well, one, Kelly, I loved what you said about our culture is superstitious because yeah. I kind of forgot because to give everyone background, my family has a weird relationship with talking about death. And like when oh. my mom bought me my wedding gifts, she bought me like, you know, jars for your flour, sugar, all of that stuff. And she's like, look, you don't even have to buy an urn. You can just dump out the flour, dump me in there and then we, you can <laughs> sprinkle me around. So it's also funny that Kayla and I, I think are really opposite in that because my mom worked in geriatric care. Um, and, was around death and obviously I work in healthcare. So you're just around it in that setting and you're around people who are dying and decaying every day. I mean, we yes. all are, but yes. it's a little bit more in your face. And obviously Jason works in healthcare and 
and sees death a lot more frequently. And then I interned with hospice a little bit. So it's funny, even the contrast between Kayla and I. Yeah. And I'm glad, Kayla, that you're here doing this with us. Because like I said, my family's irreverence with death is so offensive to so many people. And I don't consider these things sometimes because it's kind of a weird, gross family joke. I don't know. Well, that's probably kind of healthy too, in that you, um, you can talk about it openly, but, um, you know, I'm the same because I've been working in this field for so long. I probably have a negative, uh, glass half empty attitude. Although I try not to have that attitude in life. I probably have that attitude about a lot of healthcare situations. And so I get a lot of, um, my children say I'm obsessed with death, you know, stuff like that. They joke about stuff like that because I'm always looking at things in the context of what is the worst that could happen because I've seen it happen so much, but um, yeah, I get what you're saying, Kaylee. I'm, I'm kind of on that end of the, if you call it a spectrum, I'm on that end probably. So yeah. So it's good to have balance from you, Kayla. <laughs> I know. I need to like work my way over a little bit because I think <laughs> me and my husband are definitely more on the superstitious side, which we need to just get over that and kind of like address it head on. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, Kelly, it's not what, easy would to be, do that. <clears throat> what would be your recommendation for people to like start having some of those conversations? So for people who are like, okay, like my generation, a lot of us now have aging parents who are starting to get up, you know, closer to that like average lifespan mm -hmm. age. What's a good way in your experience to kind of start those conversations for people who are uncomfortable or for families who are normal, like not mine? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I've been teaching a class online for a couple of years about um, preparing and what's been so interesting to me is that a lot of our older uh, people in the class have met with a lot of resistance from their younger children about doing this process. So it's interesting that I think the first thing I would say is just be open to when your parents bring it up, because a lot of people are starting to think about it. One thing that's interesting since COVID has happened, um, there has been a I mean, I want to say like 500% increase in the number of people who have been doing advanced directives because people finally realize that they can die from infectious diseases. And I think we've never believed that until COVID is we have thought, you know, oh, it's going to be cancer or stroke or heart disease or something that we can prepare for. And until COVID, that was the case, you know, really only about 10% of people died from sudden illness or sudden accident, but that has changed since COVID. So that's one positive I think of COVID is people are now more willing to talk about it, but be open and don't think you're going to do it all in one discussion. This is going to be a series of discussions that are uncomfortable and you're going to get more comfortable with them over time. So don't think it's going to be one and done. I think that's the big thing. Yeah. I've got a newbie question because I don't, there's a phrase that you used. What is okay. advanced directives? Okay. I'm unfamiliar. Okay, cool. 
So advanced directives is the global term for those documents we would do that would uh, talk about our wishes if we were in like either a serious illness, a terminal illness, uh, vegetative state, something like that. So that's the global term. So um, every state has different what we call advanced directives. And the way we, the reason we call it that, we do it in advance of needing it. Okay. So it's a directive that we do in advance. And um, just to give you an example from Florida, I'm in Florida and we have four advanced directives. So we have a living will where a person can say what kind of treatments they want or do not want in the setting of a serious illness or a terminal illness. There's something called a healthcare surrogate where they name the person they want to make their medical decisions if they're no longer able to make those medical decisions. There's a durable power of attorney where you can designate someone to make your financial decisions if you can't make those. And then the last one we have is called a do not resuscitate. And that's really for really at the end of life. So that's not one we usually discuss a lot in the outpatient setting, but um, those are kind of the, you know, the main documents. Um, and those are things you can do with your lawyer or you can do, you know, a couple of them, the living will and healthcare surrogate, you can usually do for free. Like you can download from the bar association from your state or probably your local healthcare organization has them for free. And then some people use what's called five wishes. That's another one that, um, so there's a lot of them out there. The main thing is you want to be sure you're getting one that is, in line with the statutes in your state. So um, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, that helps a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. Sure. Yeah, sure. But yeah, so those are the documents we want to think about doing and um, ones you will probably be talking about as you start to make decisions about the future for your child and making sure his um, all his needs are met, you know, and that your health care needs are planned for in the case of something awful happening, which we hope won't. Yeah. 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 Knock on wood. Kelly. Absolutely. <laughs> this I is just what assume. we do. This is what my mantra is. We plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yep. I like so, it. You know, we, we can plan. It's kind of, so it's kind of like, this is not my story, but this is a great story that I love. So there's a, a wonderful palliative care doctor that I admire, and he uses this illustration. He says, think about the fire department. Okay, so when your kids are little, or when you were little, your parents probably told you or taught you to call 911 when there's a fire, right? You know, what do you do in case of an emergency? Call 911 or, you know, call the fire department. Well, that is wonderful. Now, when my parents were teaching me that as a child, did that mean they wanted there to be a fire? No, no, they didn't want there to be a fire, but it was great to know that that fire department was available. And that's what your advanced directives are. They're just, you check that box, put them back in the back of your, you know, safe or whatever and go on with life. So yeah. Kayla, I feel like I should have had you bring like a plank of wood with you to this episode. So you could just like <laughs> knock on it. 
as we all need to do, you know. I'm going to work on my superstition, but yeah, I, I should have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Kelly, you, okay, so we touched on a little bit about what generally the advanced mm-hmm. directives are, where people can find them based on their state. Let's do, I know you have examples, but let's kind of build out for people why it's important to have those and maybe some of the times where you've seen how things can get way more complicated than they maybe would have if those things had been in place. Right. So, uh, you know, a big thing for me that I would say, I mean, I sort of feel like we're kind of focusing on young people a little bit today. And to me are those catastrophic accidents that nobody saw coming and that we never like to think about, but do unfortunately happen. And especially, you know, people who are single think they don't need anyone, you know, but the thing about these documents is they give you a voice in case of something horrible happening. And that way your family knows what your wishes are. The thing that I've seen is one of the worst situations is parents, or siblings having to make really, really hard decisions about somebody they love in an ICU and they have no idea what their wishes would be in that situation. And so to me, that's, you know, when we're looking at younger people who who are healthy or, you know, who have small children, we want to just prepare in the event of something unplanned and catastrophic happening. And the chances and odds of that happening are very small. But if and when they do, it can be really difficult for families because not only are you dealing with the shock of a horrible thing happening, but you're also trying to wade through a medical system that you're not familiar with and, you know, terms you're not familiar with. You know, if somebody's in the ICU, we're talking about ventilator settings and we're talking about all those kind of things. And so to me, that's, you know, really helpful. And one thing you said earlier, Kaylee, that I did, that I meant to say, but I didn't, you know, to try to make these conversations less threatening, there's a really good website called, um, it's the um, Conversation Project, and it's free. It's called the conversationproject.org. And it has little snippets of questions that are kind of set up like, let's sit around the kitchen table and have a conversation. And it gives you almost like scripting of words or phrases to ask. And there's so many of them. You can really um, kind of like tailor them to your family. Like Kaylee's family would be more direct. And Kaylee's family (laughs) might be more of a soft pedal to start um, these conversations. So anyway, I hope I answered your question, Kaylee. Yeah, yeah. Kayla, did you have any questions? Because I was going to ask something else. You go for it. <clears throat> okay. So, yeah. So yes, I like thinking about like we've got to prepare for being young and something weird happening. I think also we need to prepare to potentially be decision makers for parents. Yes. yes. Um, and what that looks like, and for those of us who might have parents who refuse to have these conversations, um, or who are nervous about appointing somebody one person in particular, like I can say I've got two siblings. So there's three of us total mm-hmm. and Kayla has two half siblings um, that are her dad's kids. So we all come from like multi 
child families. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know Kayla's parents are working on doing some of this stuff. And obviously my mom and I have had conversations, but for people whose parents are unwilling or who haven't, or it's too late and their parents aren't able to appoint a decision maker anymore, what are some of the things that you've seen that are maybe common misconceptions or things that might make it difficult for somebody to process that medical information or maybe I don't I don't know I'll let you I'll let you go from there well you may have to guide me back to certain because you asked some really good things there and I don't and I may forget to cover all of them but um, <clears throat> I think the first thing you made me think about was when parents think they're hurting one child by not appointing them as the medical decision maker is like you know you're my favorite child. No, you're, you know what I mean? That kind of hierarchy kind of thing, which, and, and my experience has been for children, it's quite the opposite. They don't want the responsibility, but um, you know, what I usually tell people is it's really important to appoint just one as the primary decision maker. That doesn't mean that all those kids can't sit down together and make that decision together. It's just, you need to have one person because if you put five people down and the, the hospital can't get in touch with all five, you got a mess. You know, you need one point of contact. Now, um, that person doesn't have to be in the same town as you. Um, they can be available by phone. But to me, the person you want to pick is that person in the family who's best able to handle difficult decisions in a difficult situation. Um, and, and most families have one person that might rise to the top of that, or there may be two and you might say, let's appoint one, the primary and one, the secondary, you know, but even though there's a bunch of, you know, I, I have sat in meetings with 10 children before, and it's not that they're not all working together to make that decision. It's just that you've got that one point of contact listed so that the medical people who are trying to take care of that patient can just interact with that one person and that other person can disseminate to the rest of the family because it gets real complicated if you have five different people and they're all calling the hospital and you know trying to interact and it just gets real complicated because communication gets complicated um, just like you know think about that game we play when we're kids you know that gossip game you know it by the time it gets to the end it does it's not the same as from the source. So that's, you know, one thing I would encourage people to just don't think of it as, you know, this is my favorite child, or this is something that um, I'm being shut out of. It's not that the person's really being shut out. It's just that we need to appoint one person so that the medical people can interact. Um, you said something else that was really, I really wanted to touch on and now I've lost it. Um, I think I was saying like, what, what are some common misconceptions that mm -hmm. you see? I think maybe we should build out for people listening. Like if somebody's in an ICU and there's decisions that have to be made, we probably want to enumerate a little bit. Like, what do we mean? Like, what are those decisions and what sure. might be some sure. things that a physician would ask? Sure. And the first thing to think about and remember is <clears throat> for people who have advanced directives, such as living wills. These are only considered when we're at a place that the, the health condition is really no longer reversible. Okay. So just remember like 
in emergency, everything's going to be done. That living will healthcare document is not in play. It's only when we're in the place where we're either at a condition that's not reversible or a terminal condition or something like that. So that point is when we're going to bring those discussions. And kind of when they start is when the doctors have tried every treatment, every intervention that they have in their toolbox, and those things are not improving the patient's condition. That's kind of at the point. And a lot of times those relate to things like ventilators, which is the tube, you know, down the down the esophagus that's doing the breathing for the patient. Um, maybe when the patient is no longer responding, like almost we're thinking in a coma or even a state of not really knowing who they are, who they're with, and they might never know that, like in the case of a stroke or something. Um, when we're having to think about this person is not able to take in food orally, so we might have to talk about tubes, feeding tubes, things like that. Um, if a person is requiring lots of medications to keep their blood pressure up, which means the blood pressure is going down, you know, that they are maybe dying. Um, all those kind of things that the doctors are going to talk to families about of given this situation that doesn't look like it's going to be reversible, what in this situation would the patient want? Because most likely the patient can't talk to us anymore. So that's where those conversations are so important, those kitchen table conversations, um, because the time to have these conversations is really not ideal in a crisis because emotions are too high. Things are too stressed. You know, it's a lot of stress going on. And so the time to have those conversations, if possible, is not in the ICU family room, you know, but to those are the kind of discussions the doctors are going to ask about. And the thing that's hard is that, Doctors have a certain kind of speak. Um, nurses have a certain kind of speak. Social workers like me have a certain kind of speak. And really to try to have the conversation so that the family can understand and make, you know, a decision that they're not going to feel bad about later, you know, because that to me is one of the most important things is, you know, this patient may be dying or maybe having long-term rehabilitation or long-term disability and that family is going to have to continue with life and for them not to feel like they made the wrong decision or that they did anything that would have hurt that patient. So to me, that's a big factor right there too. I've got one more uh, potentially silly question, but I think maybe most of our listeners, unless they're in this field or they've gone through this experience personally, can you explain what hospice is and where that fits in with all this? Like what is the criteria for when we go from like someone's maybe um, has a critical illness? Like where does that transition to hospice? Cause my grandmother was in hospice on hospice, whatever. I didn't really know what that meant. And can, I couldn't conceptualize that when I was young. I just knew yeah. this means we're at the end. Like what does that mean? And how does that carry through to the end? Sure. 
so yeah so that's a lot of times that's kind of the discussion we're working toward if we are in an ICU or um, you know the question is given this set of medical circumstances what would the wishes be for this patient to continue with trying to reverse the illness or to allow for comfort and peaceful death and that's kind of you've really hit it on the nail right there that's really you know what the discussion is a lot of times so hospice is kind of um it's it's kind of defined by insurance which kind of is weird but a lot of our healthcare is defined by insurance but hospice is usually considered when the expectation is that the patient could die within the next six months of their illness um, now if they live two years they still might be appropriate for hospice it's not like if it's six months and they live we're not going to do hospice anymore but hospice care really kind of turns the focus from reversing the illness to looking at comfort um, they usually evaluate meds and say okay is this med going to provide comfort or is it something that could possibly be not necessary anymore um, a lot of times they will reduce some of the medications but the real goal is to look at pain control if there's an illness that's causing a lot of pain um, either ease of breathing you know that may be oxygen or something like that so any area of distress that the illness is causing the patient is to try to alleviate that and to try to give the family time with the patient um, whether it be at home um, you know the goal is always to be at home I think for people um, when they're at the end of life that isn't always possible but most of the time it is so hospice is like that set of care now hospice really looks like home health if you've ever heard of home health care uh, nursing um, home health aides to help with bathing cleaning that sort of thing so it's really a service that is put into the home or wherever the patient is so there might be a doctor looking at the pain uh, and other symptoms there's going to be a nurse checking for symptoms as well the aide's going to help with keeping the person clean um, hospice also usually has chaplains and social workers but um, that is kind of it's it's kind of an all-encompassing service to try to help those last period of time to be comfortable for the patient and the family too makes sense any other questions about hospice no, that helped. Uh, okay. Okay. My my personal situation with my grandmother, it was very quick. And so um, it was like a call. I was in college. Hey, she's not doing well. She's, I guess the term is on hospice, in hospice, whatever the terminology is. Sure, that's, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. She's in that realm. Yes. And by the time I got up there, I think it had been like three days. Uh -huh. And so it was very, very quick. And so in my mind, I was like, well, we're just in this like – dark room in the in this care facility and now she's like really not responsive because she's on a lot of pain meds and that's my that was my view of hospice because it was very like short defined right. she was already like really close to the end close so. to death yeah, yeah yeah and that's that's a pretty common experience for families a lot of times um hospice is brought in within the last week or even two of somebody's life 
Gotcha. Um, so that that's a pretty common um, way it usually happens. Yeah. Sometimes we even have hospice in the hospital. To that's help. what that's what it sounded like, Kayla. Like maybe she was in a hospice unit. Yeah, I think so. Of the hospital. Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah. think I, I think so. Yeah, she wasn't at home. She was not at home. Okay, yeah, that was. Yeah. It could have been very likely that they kept her in the hospital, and some some hospitals have a unit within the hospital they can move patients to. So. Hospice is wherever the patient is. Gotcha. So it doesn't have to be, it's not, it's not a place, it's a service. And I think Kelly, we've talked about this before, but obviously it depends on how the person is having a serious illness. Like if it's cancer, we're probably talking about not always, but like a slower decline versus somebody that's going into the hospital with a brain bleed where they very quickly become unconscious. Yes. Um, yes. But if we're talking about parents, I guess even in either situation, but do you, where's a good place for families to go to get hospice information or to ask about it? Because I know we've talked about that's not something every physician is necessarily going to jump up and down and talk about, which can sometimes cause these referrals to happen a lot closer to someone passing away than maybe social workers like us would want because we'd rather give the family that longer longer term service so they can prepare. I tell people to go to the hospice agency, pick up the phone and call one of the agencies because they will talk to you um, and will even um, reach out for you. Um, That's, that's a great place. Um, So I talked a little bit earlier about palliative care. That's another new term. Um, So palliative care is kind of a medical, it is a medical specialty that really is um, tries to help patients who are seriously ill. It also focuses on pain and symptom control. But a lot of what palliative care does is try to alleviate the serious and uncomfortable symptoms of an illness while the patient's going through it. That could be while they're going through treatments, you know, something like that. Um, and so to me, if you get palliative care involved, they can sort of work with the family. And if there is a need to transition to hospice, they can help with that. But um, I sort of feel like social workers in the hospital um, and in any, any setting are really good resources to learn about hospice. Um, but Kayla is right. Kaylee is right. Sorry. Kaylee is right that um, it's probably not going to be brought up. Um, by a physician or even a nurse until the situation is pretty dire. So, you know, I think it's great for families to learn about it as much as they can and be an advocate for when they feel like it's time to talk about it. Um, One thing about hospice is that in order to receive that service, the patient can no longer be undergoing um, treatments that try to reverse the condition or reverse the illness. So, for example, I mean, cancer's an example, but not all people with hospice have cancer. But um, like if they were doing radiation or chemotherapy, that would have to stop in order to receive hospice services. And um, by contrast, people who get palliative care do not have to stop those service, those treatments. So, um, but I feel like, you know, I, over the years, I've had really good experience of just referring patients directly to hospice for information. And most hospices will actually do what they call an informational visit, 
where they don't actually um, sign the patient up for hospice, but just explain to them or the family what the hospice services are, what they can expect if they choose a hospice care, and then they will follow that family for a period of time. Um, it could be weeks, months, you know, just intermittently supporting them. So when we talk about end of life decision making, and if we get to a point where maybe we've got a family member, parent, grandparent, um, that's going to have to maybe start looking at some of those decisions, what do you find are some of the most like common misconceptions about life-sustaining treatments? And I know we can't usually have opinions in like a clinical setting, but we can here because we're not representing any healthcare organization. Right. Um, What do you see as sometimes like the common pitfalls or, you know, scenarios that maybe someone made a decision without having the best information and and how that led Mm -hmm. to maybe a not as good of an outcome. I feel like that just as we're superstitious in America about death, I think most people feel that we have more control than we actually do. Um, You know, illness can be a freight train that is going down the tracks no matter what we do. That's not always the case, but it can be. And there can be a place that we reach in a person's illness or their body is just breaking down that no matter what our healthcare team, you know, what treatments, what technology we throw at it, that the person is going to die, you know? And I think that's one big thing to me is that people feel like, you know, we've always got another treatment. We've always got another something we can do. And that you do get to that point, unfortunately, that our toolbox is empty, you know? And I think that's a big thing that, people don't realize that um, we have so many things. I mean, we've got tubes and, you know, all kinds of things we can do and that they're wonderful and they, I'm thankful for them, but we do reach a point that that is no longer going to help that patient. And it's time to look at, okay, we can't do anything to make this change. So what now do we do to make life as comfortable for the patient as we can? So I think that's one thing that I see. I, I've seen a lot of suffering in my career, a lot of suffering. And that pains me more than anything is suffering that's not relieved. And I think families sometimes don't realize that their loved one might be suffering. And, and I know that if they realized they were, they would not continue what they were doing. But there's that um, thought process of I'm not ready to let them go. I can't imagine life without them. All that is valid. You know, I'm sure if it were my family member, I would be in the same mindset. And so just I think that's a big part of what I used to do and my team used to do is try to help families navigate that because it's really hard, really hard to navigate. Um, And and a lot of times it's an ICU setting, but it not isn't always. Um, And part of that is just people not understanding the limits of medicine and medical treatment. And I think that's a thing that we as social workers and people in healthcare can try to do is help them understand what's going on, what the options are, and then given that, what 
what their loved one want to do. We sometimes have this sort of empty chair discussion of if your loved one were sitting here fully aware, fully healthy, looking at what they were facing in that hospital bed, what would they tell us to do? You know, because um, it's just agonizing for people to have to make those kind of decisions, which is another reason for discussions and advanced directives. And maybe I, one thing I've you've pointed out to me that I've now used when I have to talk to patients is talking about your value. Is it quantity of life or is it quality of life? Right. And then asking those questions, if you are in that setting, once you know what your person, what their value is and your value, asking questions related to what does quality of life look like after? Because I think I've seen a lot of misconceptions of family members thinking, if we do this intervention, this person is going to be better than they were before and or the same. And it's like, well, what was their level of health before they came in here? We Are we going to be improving from here? Probably not. Is being the same something that they want to stay at? But more than likely, things are going to get worse. And just yes. the trauma of CPR and even breathing tubes being uncomfortable. Um, I think before I was in this field, those are all things that I had not considered because CPR looks different on TV shows. And yes. you Very don't, different. You don't different. hear ribs crack when you... <laughs> Right. when you do that on TV. Yeah. And I think a lot of us just don't have any conception of that. And and you are told you go to the doctor to get better. Right. And I think that's even a misconception. Sometimes you might just go to the doctor to keep living. Right. And right. what do we want that living to look like ultimately? Yeah. Yeah. But you, you bring a really great and important point is, you know, talking about values, talking about goals. You know, the thing that's so hard about filling out an advanced directive is it's in advance of needing it. I don't know any of us who can see the future. I haven't been able to, you know, I mean, we can't predict the future. So that's where you really can bring a lot of um, concrete information into an advanced directive is what are my values? What are my goals? You know, um, a goal could be I want to live long enough to see my grandchild get married. That's a valid goal. And given that goal, there may be some time where we do some really aggressive treatments to let that person reach that goal. And that is all just wonderful. I think, you know, I think that's a wonderful goal to have. Um, you know, what, what is a good day for me? What is acceptable quality of life and what is, unacceptable quality of life and that is different for everybody and it is right for everybody you know um, for example for me I don't really want to be alive if I can't interact with my family but there's a whole lot I might be willing to endure if I still can interact with my family but some people you know, independence is the be all end all. And if they can't get up and walk around and take care of themselves and breathe on their own, they don't want to be alive. So that's where those conversations are so important to really refine what those values, what those goals are, you know, that's, and those are the conversations people don't really want to have, but it's so important to, you know, try to, try to have them if you can, you know. 
And Kelly, just to kind of close everything out, I know you started on a new project, business, a new adventure. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing, where people can find your class, how they can get more information from you? We'll sure. link all of that and the the other website that you talked about in our show notes so that people can go and do some sure. research after. Cause I know we could sit here and talk about this for probably another like eight hours. We could. And, and I like talking to y'all so much. Y'all are, y'all are so open to talk. It makes me feel very refreshed to have y'all be interested in this and want to talk about it with your audience because it's very important, very important stuff. But yes, um, my friend Elizabeth Turnage and I have been teaching an online class for about two years and it is a faith-based um, class. And we kind of have focused on um, end of life um, preparing. So what the name of our, we have, we've actually started a new network, which is kind of an online community. And it is called Numbering Your Days Network. And it's free to join. Um, people are welcome to join. We've got probably, we've probably got about 70 members now for in two weeks. So we're very excited about that. But, um, that's where you can find us and I will give you the link um, for that. Um, now, if people are interested in taking our class, we have a class called Organizing Your Life and Legacy and it's a 10 week, well, 10 session class on demand. And we have recorded the course uh, for people to um, get access to. And then we also, and that there is a cost for that. And then we also have a book that we've written to guide people. It's kind of a notebook people can fill out and have all the information in it uh, that their family will need it. Kind of the design of it is we want to have a book where people can complete it. And if something happens to them, if they either die or become incapacitated, their family can take that book and they will have all the information they need to conduct the person's business affairs, all that sort of thing. Also the, you know, advanced directives are in it as well. So that is our um, joint effort. And then I have started um, a consulting business because I have realized over the years, people want to talk one-on-one -on -one about some of these um, decisions and advanced directives, end of life. So I've started a consulting business and it is called Comfort Always Consulting. And um, you can find me at kellymarkham.com. So that's kind of the little nutshell of what we're doing. We're excited because so we excited. hope to be helpful to people um, as they work through these difficult things. I think it's great that people can have an outlet. Well, I'm biased, but can have an outlet to talk to a social worker <laughs> because I think we do a good job of bridging the gap between medical terminology and layman terms because, you know, I always joke when I'm around my husband and his nursing friends, like I can hang for like a little bit of the conversation and then I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we do a good job of, we're not the smartest physicians with all of the fanciness, but you've had a ton of experience talking to the medical professionals and the families and being able to kind of straddle that line and help people walk through and really pull it down into layman's terms. I mean, our motto is to meet people where they're at. Right, so I'm excited right. that people can take advantage of the Kelly Markham that we all like to learn from oh, on a thank you. bigger scale. Um, <laughs> thank you. And learn more about that stuff. Well, I feel very honored for you all to ask me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun and I'm excited for your podcast to grow. 
Thank we you appreciate so it. Yeah, thank you. I've learned a lot today. So we yeah, really appreciate you. you on here. Um, I have some conversations that I want to have with my parents and with my husband moving forward. So um, yeah, really appreciate it. I have one last question that's somewhat unrelated, but in um, in the season of being on the Non-Sexual Soulmates podcast, my question to you was, do you have, do you have a non-sexual soulmate in your life? I wasn't prepared for that question, but I would say um, you probably have several. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to name them by name. So I probably just... do. That's, you know, it's interesting. Um, what I think of when I think about that term, which I love, I love that term. I think about those people in your life who you've been through things with that you've, um, you know, walked through life together and you've, you're, you know, continue to be friends. But the thing to me about that is those people that you might not see every day or talk to every day, but when you get together, it's like no time has passed. And that to me is, is a great, um, well, that's kind of what I think of. And I have several of those. Yeah. That sounds familiar, Kaylee. <laughs> right. Right. I love it. Well, Unless there's Kayla, unless you have any other random questions, I think, I think that's good. We got a solid interview out of all of this. I'm thinking maybe once we process and digest a little bit, we might bug you for a follow up because I know there's there's, there's always a lot. A, a lot of other things that we could touch on. Um, and maybe once we get some listener feedback too, it might be cool to have you back on and to maybe go through some other things that people have talked about. But for now, we'll link all your information so people can find you, find your network, your class, your consulting services, um, so they can do some follow-up as they need to. And then we'll be in touch if we need to circle back around and hit on anything else. Sounds great. Thank you all so much. That was our interview with Kelly Markham. <laughs> Kayla and I are doing so a terrible job of wrapping up this episode. But she, again, huge shout out to Kelly. We thank her so much for being with us. Um, all of her information, all of the information for her network, how to find her consulting business, all of that will be in the show notes. So you guys can follow up with her. We'll make sure that there are links to everything. And on her website, you'll be able to find some of the books that she mentioned and some of the additional resources uh, that she pointed out to us. And if you enjoy this conversation, I believe we will be diving deep a little bit more into our own personal um, discoveries and opinions more deeply on next week's episode. So stay tuned. That's it. Until next time. See you next Tuesday. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Non-Sexual Soulmates Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend and consider subscribing and reviewing. It would mean the world. You can find our faces and more outrageous content over on Instagram at non-sexual underscore soulmates and on TikTok at non-sexual soulmates. Our full videos are also on YouTube. If you want to share your own stories, we'd love to hear them. You can call us and leave us a voicemail. You can find our phone number, email, and all of our other links in the show notes. Until next time, you turkeys.